Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. On this show, a conversation with activist and media critic Makani Temba on Russia phobia, police brutality, and the kidnapping of immigrant children. Folks are so focused on these issues of intelligence, right? Like, as if, as progressive folks, as black people, like, this is our intelligence. And part two of our coverage of D.C. residents speaking out on police brutality and misconduct. Why should I have to uh, be fearful of the people that were sworn in? They were sworn in to protect us. I don't feel protected. They're not here to help us. All that and more coming up, including Gerald Horn on this week's summit of the BRICS Emerging Economies meeting in South Africa. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And it's not over the top to describe the political atmosphere here in Washington as chaos. And this week is no exception. Along with breaking news on Thursday night that Michael Cohen, President Trump's longtime fixer, may offer incriminating evidence against him in the so-called Russiagate investigation, hundreds of immigrant children remain separated from their parents. As of Thursday, the Trump administration said in court filings that more than 1,800 children had been reunited with their parents, but that more than 700 had not been reunited, including more than 400 children whose parents have already been deported without them. On Thursday, immigrant families and their supporters marched on Capitol Hill. The children wore white T-shirts and carried signs that read, I am a child, referencing the I am a man slogan used by Memphis sanitation workers in the 1968 strike just before the assassination of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. The protesters held a sit-in inside the Hart Senate office building and then visited with various lawmakers. More on this continuing human rights crisis for families later in the show. Also this week, federal workers launched a campaign to fight for their basic labor rights, which they say have been under attack by the Trump administration. Lydia Curtis has more. On July 25th, about 1,000 federal workers from across the region converged on Judiciary Square to express their opposition to the executive orders signed by Trump to take away official time, gutting workers' rights and ability to organize. Several unions have already been evicted from their offices as a result of this order that has been deemed illegal, so union lawyers went into federal court right after the rally to have the order rescinded. Let's hear from Senator Bernie Sanders, Sharon Jackson, and Tony Reardon at the rally. Trump and his friends have the money, but we have the people. And when millions of working people stand together to fight for economic justice, social justice, 
racial justice and environmental justice when we do not allow Trump and his friends to divide us up, we will win. The Trump administration's three executive orders issued May 25th impact 2 million federal employees here in D.C. and around the country. And finally, stories from community activists and environmental activists. Residents of Tacoma Park, Maryland, say they will work to recall members of their city council after a contentious meeting Wednesday night when the council voted to approve construction of a large-scale new development that residents say would impact traffic and pedestrian safety, the local environment, and increase gentrification of the community. And one of the biggest stories in D.C. continues to be the unusual amount of July rain, which has been falling in buckets off and on, leaving roads flooded and rivers overflowing. But rain did not stop the youth-led organization Zero Hour from holding their Youth Climate March to raise the voices of young people for a clean, safe, and healthy environment. Organizers Iris Finn Gillingham and Nadia Nazar were among those who spoke in the rain on the National Mall. We as young people are powerful. How can we stand up together? Because this isn't just the beginning of one march. This is the start of us taking control of our future. We cannot wait for our leaders. We have to become leaders. We must protect animals by solving the roots of climate change. 
We as humans must be allies to other species, for we are animals too. They have lived here for billions of years and they deserve to be on this land as much as any one of us. We must stand up for the animals on the front lines of climate change. They only have this planet and we only have this planet. This planet is filled with life and love and we must preserve it for everyone. We are in the middle of an era of death. We are in the middle of an era of ignorance. We are in the middle of a mass extinction. We will not be known for our tall skyscrapers, landing on the moon, or building walls. We will only be known as the cause for the extinction of everything on this planet. Extinction is irreversible. There is nowhere to go. And once all the animals are dead, we will be next. You decide. Sister marches were led by Zero Hour organizers in 20 other cities, including New York, London, and Pittsburgh. And now for international news, I'm joined by On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, today, the meeting of the BRICS nations winds up in South Africa. That's the meeting of the emerging economies of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Ah, got them all that time in one breath. And so I know you've been watching this summit. What is the news that's coming out of this year's summit? Well, I think that when historians of the future look back at this week, uh, one of the things they'll focus on is July 25th, Wednesday, not only because of the BRICS summit opening in Johannesburg, South Africa, present President Putin of Russia and President Xi Jinping of China, amongst other leaders, but they were accompanied by a slew of African leaders and also Jamaica, representing CARICOM, the Caribbean Community Nations, which of course of course includes Haiti and Barbados, Trinidad and Tobago, etc. I hope it was an accident that the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, instead of being in Johannesburg, has been in Washington, D.C. this week. I hope that's just an accident or coincidence. In any case, this meeting in Johannesburg uh, might be the most important meeting in Africa on the continent since 1958, when Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana organized what amounted to a Pan-African Congress of emerging liberation movements, and of course, there were not that many independent African nations, but certainly a number of black Americans attended, including Shirley Graham Du Bois, the writer, and perhaps better known as the spouse of W.E.B. Du Bois. But this meeting in Johannesburg has been tremendously important, who was preceded by a visit of Prime Minister Modi of India to Uganda, where he made uh, uh, a very important initiative in terms of announcing that India would be opening uh, 18 new embassies on the African continent. And given 
the fact that India is in the passing lane right now and will be challenging China for the position of being the leading economy on this planet within decades, this is exceedingly important. Now, the agenda of the BRICS summit, among other things, includes seeking to merge the BRICS agenda with the African and Caribbean agenda. That is to say, BRICS sees as a strategic initiative uplifting Africa and the Caribbean. Now, contrast that with the present initiatives in Africa and the Caribbean by U.S. imperialism, for example. The BRICS Bank, which is a challenger to the World Bank headquartered in Washington, D.C., is pledging to sponsor more infrastructure development in Africa and in the Caribbean, not unlike the North to South Highway recently completed in Jamaica, which has been a game changer for that small island nation, or not unlike the Nairobi to Mombasa train, or not unlike the recent train uh, initiated in Ethiopia. Meanwhile, back in Washington, D.C., on Wednesday, July 25th, you had another very important development. In some ways, when Donald J. Trump met in the Oval Office with the president of the European Commission, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, he basically ran up the white flag with regard to his trade war contesting the European Union. It was a unilateral surrender by Mr. Trump. Basically, what happened is that he was pursuing a particular strategy with regard to hegemony and domination of U.S. imperialism, that is to say, basically trying to convert Canada into a vassal state, weakening the European Union, neutralizing Russia, and then confronting China. The Democrats, of course, yelled bloody murder. They charged Mr. Trump with being a traitor and being treasonous, in the words of former top intelligence chief John Brennan. And the Democrats demanded a more traditional strategy, which is uniting with the European Union and Canada to confront Russia and China. Now, of course, uh, for our constituency and our community, uh, both strategies are harebrained. Neither should be pursued. And I would hope and imagine that the black leadership in particular would see that any kind of deal between Europeans and Euro-Americans, as represented in the Oval Office, on Wednesday, July 25th, is certainly not in our interest. And in any case, since I know who I'm talking about, if they do decide to go down that road of supporting the traditional democratic strategy, at least get a concession with regard to H.R. 40, the reparations bill, or perhaps uh, getting the Democrats to sign on to a campaign against the GOP initiative to seek to erode birthright citizenship as reflected in the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which purportedly is aimed at immigrants, particularly Mexican immigrants. But since our presence as citizens of the United States turns upon the 150-year-old 14th Amendment, which overturned the Dred Scott case of 1857, if birthright citizenship is eroded, then our presence in North America is then up for grabs. So the black American leadership does plan to support the Democratic Party strategy for imperialist domination, at least get a concession. I hope that there's not a surrender without compensation. But in any case, I think that this meeting of the BRICS in Johannesburg, 
coupled with this surrender by Mr. Trump on the same day, July 25th, has been a historic turning point. Well, speaking of citizenship and issues of you know who belongs here, the Trump administration missed a deadline on Thursday to reunite you know thousands of children kidnapped basically by the state and taken from their parents who had come here seeking you know to be here in the United States. And there was a march uh, to the Capitol. It was a march of children. They had on white T-shirts that said, you know, I am a child. Um, many were, you know, immigrant children. And they d- held a sit-in. And we have a clip of uh, them meeting with Senator Kamala Harris of California. And uh, we'll play that now. I'll tell you, we are better than this. America is better than this. And so we're going to fight for that. And we're going to fight for the ideals of who we are. We are better than these policies. And so you heard on the clip she's saying, you know, speaking to reporters afterward that we're better than this, you know, and and really just demanding that the Trump administration, you know, do better and, you know, reunite these families. We're better than this. I trust that she's not referring to the history of the United States of America, which has had a very distressing history of disrupting the families of Native Americans, uh, sending them out for adoption. Let's not even talk about the African slave trade, which has featured repeatedly uh, taking the babes from the arms of weeping parents and selling the babes down the river into slavery. Uh, Let's not even talk about how the United States supported the Argentine junta in the 1970s, which kidnapped the children of left-wing dissidents threw the parents into the ocean and then put the children up for adoption for military generals. I think one of the most disturbing aspects of this entire scandal and tragedy is how typically our friends in the Democratic Party have approached it in a very narrow manner, uh, seeking to deodorize and sanitize the smelly history of U.S. racism, slavery, and white supremacy, and presenting this unrealistic picture, which quite frankly does not prepare us to grapple with the profundity and the dimensions of what has befallen these immigrants seeking to cross the border. What's happening on the international level? Uh, Is there anything new at the U.N.? or in these various countries in Central and South America, you know, basically demanding human rights for these, you know, these people arriving or denouncing the, U- the U.S. in any additional way? Well, certainly there have been full-throated denunciations, but they have come disproportionately from the nations you would expect, such as Cuba and Bolivia and Venezuela. I expect when the new president of Mexico takes office on December 1st, you get a more muscular response from Mexico City. And I think that that's when the rubber will begin to hit the road. Well, we'll definitely keep not only watching that story, but continuing our coverage. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, professor, author, Gerald Horn. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you.
Yo soy un Congo de la madre, África. Venimos el Congo de la madre, África. No traigo un Congo de su madre, África. Somos del Congo de la madre, África. Yo soy un Congo de la madre, África. Venimos el Congo de la madre, África. No traigo un Congo de su madre, África. Somos del Congo de la madre, África. Soy un Congo de la madre, Congo de la madre. Soy un Congo de la madre, Congo de la madre, África, África. Pero café con leche. Arrecotado, 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 vivo arrimado, arrecotado, 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 vivo la vida crédito, como no, inventando ni una todo el día ando yo, antes tenía todo pelado, ya estoy pelado, vivo remendado, estamos Good evening. Thank you all very much for joining us. Uh, my name is Charles Allen. I am the Ward 6 Council Member and Chair of the Council's Committee on Judiciary and Public Safety. I'm calling, reconvening this public oversight roundtable um, and calling it to order. Uh, this evening, the committee is going to be exploring the topics of policing and public safety in Ward 7 and 8. This is a continuation of our morning session, which was held at the Wilson Building, where we heard from our government witnesses, the Metropolitan Police Department's Chief Peter Newsham, and the Office of Police Complaints Director Michael Tobin, as well as many members of the public, and we're picking back up with more public witnesses this evening. We've held a field hearing or in the community uh, a hearing before, but we haven't held one here in Ward 7. So I'm glad that we're doing that and glad to join everybody here in the Deanwood community at this facility, as well as to hear from residents and neighbors about these incredibly important issues. Although I spoke to our reasoning for convening today's roundtable in our morning session, since obviously not everybody was able to be there, uh, I want to sp uh, spend a, a second reiterating some of those points. We've experienced throughout the district, but particularly in wards seven and eight, a number of recent well-publicized negative police and resident interactions. These incidents have included the shooting of household pets while responding to calls for service or for executing search warrants. Officers have worn clothing that glorifies violence or death and sanctions brutality while in open court. And black men have been killed in officer-involved shootings and collisions. I've heard from many residents who are looking for answers. I've watched the videos of at least two recent incidents here in Deanwood, both on June 13th, a stop and frisk of several individuals outside of Nook's Barbershop on Sheriff Road, as well as on June 25th, when MPD uh, returned to the scene and had a resulting confrontation with residents. The conduct in both videos does not reflect our DC values, and I don't believe improve public safety. Advisory Neighborhood Commissioner Anthony Lorenzo Green. Uh, I represent single member district 7C04, which is uh, a third of the Deanwood community from Eastern Ave down to 44th Street, from Sheriff Road to J Street, a small portion of Nanny Helen, and also includes Nook's Barbershop, Little Jewel's Daycare, Uncle Lee's um, Liquors, and uh, Sonny's Carryout. I want to thank this committee for having this roundtable to discuss policing and public safety in Ward 7 and 8. Um, and it's unfortunate that it took incidents on Sheriff Road to cause this hearing to come to place today, because um, we know that there have been a long string of incidents over the years where there have been negative interactions with police. And unfortunately, every time we have this conversation, it gets drowned out with, oh, well, there's a lot of good police. And we know that. Um, many of our folks in our community will tell you who they are. They will give you their names. They interact with them every day. Unfortunately, there are a lot of bad actors within the MPD that have used their badge and the power they're granted by the city to terrorize and harass young black and brown men across this city, not just in Ward 7 and 8, but in black and brown communities across the city. Um, and what I would like to see is a better approach to whatever community policing is, because it's come to me that it's just simply a buzzword. There's no 
umph behind it. There's nothing behind it. Because anytime that you look at the video that I'm proud that you guys played it earlier in its entirety in the morning session, the June 13th incident in front of Nook's Barbershop, that's not the type of policing that I want to see tolerated in the Deanwood community and other communities across the city. When I first saw that video, which was on June the 22nd, it was posted on social media, and I took that entire weekend to really look at different angles of the video, because there were tons of videos of that day on Instagram. Um, and on Sunday morning, I wrote the letter to Chief Newsham inquiring about the video, inquiring about the gun recovery unit, which I'm fully aware of this unit because they, I'm not going to say popular in a good way. You know, many folks in communities in Ward 7 and 8 know certain members of that gun recovery unit, including the individual that we all see in the video pull out the BB gun from the strangers or the mystery man that was on that block that no one can seem to identify. One thing that baffles me about that video is the police allowed an individual who had a weapon in our community. They did not identify it as a BB gun on the scene. They immediately put the gun in their own ways and allowed him to walk away and hop in a vehicle like nothing happened. While everyone else that was on that block, some of which I went to school with, many folks who actually grew up in this community, were harassed and had their Fourth Amendment rights violated right on the spot. And I'm actually proud of the young men and women on the 5200 block of Sheriff Road who took the initiative to not only tell the officers what they believe were their rights as they identified them in the video. I do not consent to this search. They also had a casual conversation with the officers when they first pulled up, when they asked about the tenant windows on the car with expired tags. And they explicitly said that they were only there about the tenant windows. Uh, then it immediately turned into whoever this individual was standing out that day. My thing is, if we're going to really engage certain segments of our community to provide services and assistance, we have to actually engage them as human beings and stop treating them as their savages in our neighborhood. These are folks that grew up in Deanwood. I'm a Deanwood native. I'm a proud Deanwood native. And I don't say that divisively. I say that because there are many members of this community who are not as engaged as many will hope they are, but they're here. They live their lives every day. And when this video came out, my phone and my email, my social media accounts were blown up that entire weekend with folks inquiring about why is this still happening in our community? And the word, the key word is still. There are a lot of young brothers and sisters in our community who do have jobs that you may see pull up a lawn chair to the corner, but there's an assumption that they're bad actors, they're doing something wrong. There are a lot of young brothers who have been harassed by MPD coming home from work. There's a young brother that owns a small business within our neighborhood. He works out in Virginia, hangs out in Maryland, but every time he comes home to Deanwood, his car is constantly pulled over, his, he's questioned about tents on his window, and he's constantly asked about whether he has guns in his car. These are individuals that live in Deanwood. There is a, a knee-jerk reaction to constantly call the police whenever they see a group of black boys on the corner. But there are other neighbors in the community who will tell you, why don't you just go out there and say hi? Why don't you introduce yourself? Why don't you get to know them? There are neighbors that reached out to me and told me stories about how a group of young men in the community they always saw across the street and they had the assumption that they were doing something bad. But once they got to know them, they realized that these young men were actually looking out for them. They were looking out for their cars to make sure no one's breaking in. And these are the same stories that you hear on the 5200 block of Sheriff Road, particularly Nook's Barbershop and Little Jules Daycare. A lot of them feel like they raised these young men on that corner 
and they're the reason why they have not had a lot of the criminal activity that comes over the Maryland border from Fairmont Heights and Chapel Oaks, why some of that criminal activity is not affecting that block in the last year, which crime is down 50% on that very block. They have a very tight-knit community. They believe in policing their own block with positivity, and we need to make sure that as long as that we have MPD or gun recovery unit or whatever unit that's roving around our city, that they fully understand the culture of our community and the residents that live in it. Uh, and unfortunately, we do have a number of leaders in the community who do not understand or know the residents that grew up in this neighborhood, from this neighborhood, and can't seem to piece together the reason why we still have these issues. I grew up in a community where it was easy to find an outdoor basketball court. Right now, there are no outdoor basketball courts in Deanwood. The basketball courts that were down here at this rec center are tennis courts. The basketball court that was at Roper, which is now Ron Brown, is a tennis court. They are drastically underutilized. But I have folks asking me, why can't these young brothers and sisters get off the block? Why can't they go down to the rec center? Go down to the rec center and do what exactly? This facility has been used as a revenue generator for the city so they can pull in dollars from Merlin and whoever else wants to rent space in this building. It has not been a community place for Deanwood. And folks need to remember when this place first opened that there was a line drawn right in the middle of the pool that said that side was yours and this side was ours. There were shootings at this building when it first opened. That means something. So when we have these conversations about what services are needed for our community and how we can help folks, we have to understand the culture, the long-term culture of Deanwood and the surrounding neighborhoods and why there are very few safe spaces for our young brothers and sisters. Of course, a barbershop is a safe space for our young brothers and sisters. A barbershop that's been in our community for 25 years. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. You have been listening to Voices from a public hearing held by the D.C. Council Judiciary Committee on July 12, 2018 at the Deanwood Community Center in Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. We'll be right back. Good God of grace, will I have his mercy? I'm a old slave driver. Time is catching up on you. Old slave driver. I know your sins, them my on. So carry we go home. I bring the brother in. Welcome on a Rasta man. A Rasta no live on no Catalan. Carry we go home As if we settle and cease Welcome on a Rasta man A Rasta no live on no chapter land Well, Lord America a chapter land The whole of Jamaica a chapter land A long time them won't drink the Rasta man Like them no know said that man a real African You think me no member 
King Ferdinand And if in Columbus have a golden plan They make a brown turn and end up in Caribbean One rasta no side kill nothing the analog turn paradise in a plantation And bring cross one ship blue the African Now here comes the thief in Queen from England Now she come away well like Henry Maga Sent up a century full of separation And after 400 years me send a reparation And all them want to kill me with the taxation But I beg you please take me to the motherland I beg you tell me me go home If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for this month's extended segment on media and culture, I'm joined by Makani Temba. She's Chief Strategist at Higher Ground Change Strategies based in Jackson, Mississippi. She's a social justice innovator and pioneer in the field of change communications and narrative strategy. She spent more than 20 years supporting organizations, coalitions, and philanthropic institutions in developing high-impact change initiatives. She's the author of several books, including Fair Game, A Strategy Guide for Racial Justice Communications in the Obama Era. Welcome back to the show, Makani. Well, I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm glad that you can be here to talk with me today because... It is such a fraught media environment. Uh, as we speak, there are reports that Julian Assange, the I guess probably the world's best-known whistleblower and kind of maverick journalist, in, in my estimation, is possibly going to be evicted from the Ecuadorian embassy in London. We're in this environment where there's this kind of dangers, I think, of forced allegiance to every vague finding of the so-called intelligence community. And recently, we witnessed this wholesale meltdown here in D.C. in the corporate media and among elected officials and people in the so-called intelligence community over Donald Trump's meeting with Putin in Helsinki. So there's been a lot of back and forth, even on the left, about whether the leaders of the two nuclear powers on planet Earth should meet together. So what's your take looking at this as a media critic? I think one of the things that it's very disappointing is there's really no coverage of the content or the actual issues that are at stake, where all you're hearing about are the personalities, the intrigue, but there's so much. We have food policy, farm policy, uh, trade policy. I mean, you know, so much is at stake. So there's that, like, Where are we as a progressive community in our understanding of geopolitical realities? Because what's really sad is you're seeing even progressive media in many cases get caught up in the personalities and not in the policies that are at stake. So that is the first thing that's super disturbing, right? And then folks are so focused on these issues of intelligence, right? Like as if as progressive folks, as black people, like this is our intelligence, Right. Yeah. Yeah. What what is intelligence? Right. People are like basically, you know, for the CIA and the FBI. And you're like, why is this happening? And um, and part is people 
typically leveraging it as a tool to try to be critical, and they think they're organizing Trump's base by waving the flag and saying, well, look at this un-American thing he's doing. And folks don't care who support him. They don't care. But for progressives, why would we basically say that this is a department and an agency that we should put our public trust in. This is the same place that we're, where you have Cointelpro and all kinds of other things going on. So it's almost like Trump has forced and created a completely different public conversation about agencies and institutions and trade and policy where the left is almost disappeared. Hmm. Well, you know, that's so interesting you say that the left has disappeared because not only can you cite COINTELPRO, but even most recent history, I mean, Robert Mueller becoming the savior of the so-called left. And, you know, I have found some new left media that doesn't disappoint me. They show the video of Robert Mueller testifying about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And, and he was one of the main people pushing that line. And it takes alternative media to really remind people because it seems like uh, so much of corporate media is just being led, led along by these same so-called intelligence community figures, uh, former officials that are now paid commentators on like MSNBC and One of the things that's also interesting is how liberal and even some quote-unquote progressive, you know, to the left of liberal folks are trying to leverage this frame of the Red Scare, like, oh my God, Russia, right? And all of the Cold War imagery to, you know, in their minds, break the Trump coalition. But that is not going to be messaging our frame is ever going to work for us to be like, oh, my God, Red Scare. Like, what is what are we saying? And for all of us who do work that's outside of the liberal box or outside of the conservative box, outside of the flag-waving box, then that's a setup for isolation of all kinds of work. It's just a, it's just a bad idea all the way around. Exactly. I went to what was called the Red for Feds rally, and I'm not sure it's not Reds in the way that we like would normally use the word, but it was a union rally in downtown D.C. on Wednesday that really was a uh, a solidarity event for federal workers. And the fact that I saw all these same kind of establishment corporate Democrats be trotted out. And I was really surprised, you know, like Ben Cardin of Maryland uh, tried out this Russia stuff and it got the, the least response from the audience. You know, the biggest response was for Bernie Sanders, who came out, who people thought of as a more authentic champion of labor and, you know, some of their values. And it reminded me of, I think, a poll recently that showed that concern about Russia and Russiagate was polling at like something at less than 1%. And that people cared about their jobs, their homes, their children, their health care. That's right. So this month also marked four years since the police murder or killing of Eric Garner by the New York Police Department, Daniel Pantaleo, 
applying this fatal chokehold and basically lynching him on video, which went viral. Four years later, his family is still seeking justice. The New York City Department actually had to recently say that if the Justice Department doesn't come up with some type of findings or decision in its investigation, that they're going to open their own. I don't know what that means. But I thought it might be a good time to kind of think about the coverage of the movement for Black Lives at that time and and what's happened since then. One thought I have is how I shudder to think that these killings have become normalized. But I have to admit that I think that for a lot of media, these murders have become commonplace. And unless there's a video, they don't even get any coverage at all. Well, I guess there's a couple of things. One is they were already commonplace. We just didn't know about them. Every day in cities all across America, people are being killed by the police. And the police have very little accountability. And people react to that in all kinds of ways. For some people, it'll make you want to fight harder. For some people, it'll be like, what's the use? Because it is an incredibly disheartening thing for folks who aren't familiar Right, with the ways of evil government, right? <laughs> You're like, police are here to protect us. Oh, wow, and then something happens to my son, something happens to my daughter, something happens to my nephew. And then they're faced with this brutal reality. There was a recent documentary, and I understand they're going to be doing a follow-up, of a young man, 15-year-old, who was tased and then basically forced into an accident on an ATV in Detroit and some years back. And, you know, there's video from the body cam of the police officer standing over his body, the fire department coming and washing away the evidence on purpose. Fortunately, people, you know, were out with phones filming it. That's how come we know, right? So there's all of these stories. And that phone technology that what people call citizen reporting or community reporting is making possible that in many ways is making the corporate news media less relevant in terms of what is a story and how does something, quote-unquote, go viral and Mm -hmm. how little of what goes viral was something that was on CBS or even MSNBC. One of the impacts of the movement is that there are more and more people who are willing to be courageous and document and stand up and be journalists for the people. They're willing to turn their phones on, put that stuff up on Facebook, put that stuff up where folks can see it. And even if an officer does not get indicted, which sadly does not happen very often, there's still a growing sense that this is not a system that works. We were able to do two things recently. We did speak to the attorney for the family of Antoine Rhodes, the young man killed in East Pittsburgh. And this is a rare case where the officer was arrested and there were charges after more than a week of, you know, protests by the community. And on this show, the second segment from a public hearing on police brutality here in D.C. The the first part was really amazing to me because we had the voices of black council members. These are elected officials, men who talked about their own experiences being in one, Treyon White, he talked about being hospitalized after being assaulted by the police. And so these are men who have achieved a certain status in society, 
So really, when you really think about that, that should be somewhat shocking for people, but it's commonplace. It's commonplace. And so on today's show, more voices, people talking about, particularly in Ward 7 and 8, what we call East of the River here in D.C., which is still predominantly African-American section of D.C., the things that people have experienced there. And really, when you think about it, uh, it's very chilling. And it's a real call to arms in terms of uh, creating more accountability from the police, what some people call community control of the police, and having a different model for what that looks like when the community interacts with the police. And then this would be an easy segue into the really horrific story of immigrant children being separated from their parents. But we're going to go to a brief break and we'll be right back with Makani Temba. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and I'm in conversation with media critic Makani Temba for this month's extended segment on media and culture. And Makani, before the break, we were going to segue from issues of police brutality to this horrific story about children basically being kidnapped by the government and taken away from their parents down at the Mexican border. On Thursday, there was the court-imposed deadline to reunite these children with their parents. And I think one of the later reports I saw before broadcast was that more than 1,800 children had been reunited with their parents. And that report said 2,500 had been separated from their parents. But I'm almost sure that the number was about 3,000. But in any case, they were saying maybe 7 of 10 children had been reunited. But... They also said that almost 500 parents had already been deported. I spoke to an attorney here, uh, Ophelia Calderon, who's an immigrant attorney a couple weeks ago. And we've discussed uh, at least two cases where we know that undocumented women have had their children put into foster care and then adopted out to families in this country. So they've lost total custody of their children. And we're really concerned about that because when you look at the fact that you have almost 500 parents already deported, you know, obviously, number one, the Trump administration had no intention or no plan for reuniting the parents. But we really have to make sure that these children aren't taken away from the parents and basically doled out to U.S. families. And that's exactly what's at stake. And then the way the administration and their allies are talking about this, it's the same old story that they used when they talked about Indian boarding schools and, you know, just the whole range of things. This is an old, old, old practice, right? This idea that they're doing something good for the kids. People of color who are not able to care for their children and therefore the state has to step in 
and whatever it is they do, put kids in cages, whatever is going to be better than what their parents do because because the assumption is their parents aren't feeding them, their parents aren't loving them, their parents aren't caring for them, and therefore the state must do this. And then whatever happens to these children is okay, right? Because they weren't living human lives anyway. And I think what's been great, of course, are been the folks who have stepped up, who have forced the nation to sort of look at exactly what's going on. And it would be comical if it wasn't so tragic and so profound where you have the administration talk about, well, they're not really cages. They're not cages. Why do you call them cages? They're better than where they live. It's bigger than where they live. It's incredible and deeply disturbing the way they are trying to move the story to to make it seem like this is essentially a social service enterprise. And, you know, folks, you know, coming to get these children because, you know, you know, because there is a shortage. You're, you know, folks want children. They're going to China. They're going to Romania. They're going to Ethiopia. They're going to, to adopt children. Children are a prime market, right? Sad to say. And that's the part where there's not been enough investigation. What's happening? Where are these children? And then the other thing, too, is there's a deep call for volunteers to come down to the detention centers and help and be in community with not only children, but the adults who are being detained. Um, The conditions are really poor. Um, You know, we're getting reports out thanks to some of the folks who are in there trying to tell the story of what's going on. Kids are being beaten. They're being abused verbally. You know, there's just all manner of things that are happening to these kids that are just deeply traumatic. There's no way that they're going to survive this horrible ordeal without some kind of trauma. And and it's like, where is the reparation, right? And what we know from, from things like the Indian boarding school days, I mean, people are still living with the trauma of that separation, you know? And at that point, of course, they were selling kids for 10 bucks. You know, they were taking indigenous children and saying, you can have one of your own for $10, right? And so we do have a moral responsibility to stay with it, right? To stay with the story, to stay with the kids, to stay with the family. On any given day and on any given week here in D.C., looking at all of this from the lens of a journalist, there are so many moves on offense in so many different realms. You know, I joke with Ray McGovern when he was on the show last time. I said, it's like it's on somebody's whiteboard and they're plotting out the moves and how many moves will be made at the same time. Because whether it's this horrific abuse of these children and families, whether it's the environment, the interior, the economy, moves against the labor movement, against black folks, against brown folks, against women, against any forward motion in society that has happened, certainly in our lifetime, it's like they're going after all of it. And it's like, hurry up, because, you know, we only have a little bit of time. So we're going to do as much damage as we can while we're here. This is what they wrote about. This is what they said they do. This is the work of like David Horowitz, you know, when he talk about the constant and permanent revolution 
the importance of chaos. You have these folks like Sessions, like Horowitz, who've been writing about this strategy for more than 20 years. And this is exactly what they said. They said, look, this is the way to do it. You have to do it all at the same time. Right. And that's what it feels like, the, you know, the chaos theory. Right. right. It's chaos theory, but it's, it's a step further because you have a person who's a right wing, you know, extreme, you know, <laughs> extreme thinker who is taking these principles of permanent revolution and basically how to solidify hegemony and using these principles to advance these racist, patriarchal, oh, really misogynist ideas and policies. And then you layer on top of this just a straight up focus on profit. You know, everything that's happening with EPA right now, everything that's happening with the Department of the Interior, you know, what's happening in terms of the military budget, right? <laughs> the military budget, too, right? And then this straight giveaway of subsidies to farmers for what's essentially Trump's own private trade war. And this is the part that's so disturbing about the lack of coverage, because there's so little coverage of the actual issue. Like right. What is at stake? Where is the money? You know, a lot of these stories are incredibly marginalized. Right. And when you don't have the right kind of coverage, and it kind of glosses over the fact that the so-called resistance here in D.C., they may be hollering Russia, Russia, Russia. But in the meantime, they're approving these increases in the military budget. There's no firm opposition to these inhumane budgets, right? That's slashing health care and food assistance for children. And it's ridiculous. It just rings hollow. You know, it's just like when I was at this rally, like, you know, what are you talking about? You're no friend of labor. You're no friend of working people. So, but um, I just, I do know we wanted to switch and talk about something a little lighter. I know that we've both seen, sorry to bother you. This is this new satire by Boots Riley. And so what were your thoughts when you saw it? I thought that it was definitely out the box. And, you know, it's always weird when you take black work and you compare it to, um, to white folks. But I did think a lot about Orwell, you know, as I was watching it. And it definitely had this wonderful kind of Oakland flavor to it that was really wonderful. And I'm still processing it, but it felt very much like um, a strong piece of satire that layered race and gender and, and class. And I, I really loved all the performances. It felt very like a very intimate film in many ways. I couldn't help but think about Get Out. Because here we have a second really kick-ass satire, kind of horror comedy, where you have this latest wave of black filmmakers coming at some really hard truths about United States society, race and society and class and, and gender in a way that's definitely from a black perspective. And only they can tell these stories the way they're told. I just so enjoy the fact that I'm able to witness this new latest wave of black film that is really, you know, just coming at society in a way, I mean, that I haven't seen since Hollywood Shuffle and 
And I'm going to get you sucker. And they were talking about some different things. And this is almost like, you know, 20 years later, almost 30 years later, like 2.0, where, you know, we're not just critiquing society in the same plane. We're moving it to another level, you know, the, of science fiction and science fiction and horror. So I, I'm just so you know, thrilled that I'm actually able to witness that and just want to see where it goes, you know. I also think that Get Out was a glimpse into a kind of a a more psychoanalytical view of racism and the way racism plays out, which is important. Right. I feel like, sorry to bother you, and that's why I thought a lot about Orwell. And it's like, what Boots does is take really big themes and tells a super compelling story that's about really everything. That's right. It's everything. This is the slang, right? You know, that's everything. <laughs> that really was everything. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. I've been speaking with Makani Timba, media critic, and she's chief strategist at Higher Ground Change Strategies based in Jackson, Mississippi. Thank you for joining me today, Makani. Thanks so much. It's always a pleasure. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank Gerald Horn and Lydia Curtis for their contributions. Thanks to our summer intern, David Williams, who also contributed. The music we played today included Bitwaya, Venezuelan artist, Congo and La Madre, Chronics, Capture Land, and Burnt Sugar, What Rough Beast. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Twitter pages and our Facebook pages and help us overcome those Facebook algorithms that are limiting distribution of our content. Our On the Ground Facebook page is the page with the picket sign with the green lettering that says On the Ground. Also, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes at WPFW On the Ground. And if you do listen to the podcast, give us a nice rating. We would very much appreciate it. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.